0: Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowey. In today's episode, we'll be looking back at the results of the Eden-Monero by-election. My guest today is William Bowe from the Poll Bludger website. Hello, William. Hello, Ben. So we're recording this episode on Friday, six days after the by-election. At this point, most of the votes have been counted and we're just waiting for some last postal votes to trickle in over the next week. Labor candidate Kristen McBain currently leads by 723 votes, a lead that should remain solid through any remaining counting. At some point in the last few days, she's been up to about 900 votes in the lead. Liberal candidate Fiona Cotvoys conceded defeat yesterday. So the result was a slight swing towards the Liberal Party, making an already very marginal seat even more marginal. The current margin is 0.4% for Labor. William, what's the most interesting part of the results for you?
1: I think what's most interesting about the results is how uninteresting they are. Uh, We're going to be talking in a fair deal of depth, I imagine, about certain regional variations in swing, in the broader scheme of things, they're not really very much to write home about. And what we have had here is a miraculously status quo result at the time when the world is in a state of complete turmoil. And uh, this isn't the international norm. You know, we've seen, if you look at opinion polls, there have been, you know, dramatic changes in the United States, convulsions in New Zealand, uh, all sorts of uh gymnastics going on in poll ratings over the course of the crisis in the UK. But here in Australia, we it doesn't seem that anything that's going on has changed many people's opinions or you know, caused them to shift their allegiances from where they are in the very different world of last year.
0: And one thing that I think has made Ed Monero... Interesting is that most by-elections don't happen in super-marginal seats, right? They certainly don't. And if they do, sometimes it's in a situation where the party that holds the seat is expected to increase their margin or isn't facing opposition. One thing that was interesting about this was both major parties seriously contested the by-election. And it was a like it wouldn't have decided who was in government. But the government has a relatively slim majority in the House of Representatives and gaining an extra seat would have been quite handy. But as you say, it remained close because it was already very close, but barely anything swung, and we're talking about very small differences in either direction.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of hype about, you know, there hasn't been a government losing a seat to, an, sorry, an opposition losing a seat to a government since 1920. This invariably overlooks how few opportunities there have been for that to happen. Because, you know, we need to be talking about a seat that is reasonably marginal, held by the opposition. Uh, As you say, one that the the government party makes a determined effort to win. And uh, the the, the opportunities for that over the years have been very few. So while it's a status quo result and, you know, the the sort of spin from conservatives is a status quo result in a by-election is a disaster for the opposition. Uh, that is, at a bare minimum, highly exaggerated. Uh, it, it, the swings historically in opposition-held seats haven't been great. They have been marginally typically in favour of the opposition party, so it's slightly psychologically disappointing from Labor's perspective that they haven't p- improved, mostly, though, because you know they're coming off a low base. So, uh, you know, and the, I, I think, you know, it's worth investigating that this this electorate was largely the epicentre of the bushfires. So you would have expected a blowback against the Liberal Party from that, and uh, I, I think that there's a little bit of room there for a narrative that this is a broadly disappointing result for the Labor Party. But uh, all told, uh, I think to reach any partisan conclusion about this by-election requires a fair bit of over-analysis. I think uh, most of the time in in this sort of circumstance, you wouldn't expect a wildly convulsive result. We haven't had one. And I, you know, hesitate to read much too much into it, except that for both parties, the, the, the ship is sort of more or less steady. Obviously, Scott Morrison's over the problems that he was having six months ago, thanks to the coronavirus crisis. But by the same token, Labor haven't dramatically improved and that's their their disappointment, given how disappointing the result of last year's federal election was. In theory, they should have a lot of slack to take up if they really are genuinely recovering.
0: In a sense, this by-election was, there was an opportunity for it to be a major factor in federal politics if there'd been a big swing one way or the other. But if anything, we we kind of have the absence of any major narrative and so, as you say, it requires over-analysis or perhaps uh, selective analysis to um, be able to put much of a sw- to be able to put much of a spin on the result. I mean, we saw some um, remarkable gymnastics by the day, by the Sunday Telegraph with their Sunday headline, which basically spun it as a disaster for Labour, based on kind of. Uh, early results that were missing quite a lot. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think we can we can pin that there about the meaning of it, but it's still some interesting to kind of look at what the figures say. Um, one thing I'd start with is there was a big increase in postal voting. We saw uh, last election there was about 5,500 uh, postal votes cast in Eden Manero. And this election there's been over 12,000 counted so far with some more expected to arrive. Uh, so that's like a that's a doubling of postal voting since the last election. I would expect the turnout overall to be a bit lower, so that's a, uh, an even bigger increase as a proportion of the total vote. So um, that presumably mostly reflects the impact of the COVID nineteen pandemic, and we did see a much bigger effort from the Labor Party to um, acquire postal vote applications than we have in the past, so I think that maybe is a bit of a window into how other elections conducted under the shadow of the pandemic um, happen, although admittedly, at least outside of Melbourne, we're not in the height of the pandemic right now, so it would be interesting. Things could could look quite different um, if the disease was um, much more of a presence in, in New South Wales than it is at the moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, compare it with the, the elections that were held in Queensland a couple of months ago now. And uh, the, that they really radically changed what the, you know, the face of the election looked like in terms of the amount of votes being cast on polling day uh, versus pre-polls in particular. What we saw at this by-election was, a, as you say, an increase in postal voting, which, uh, you know, is not part of any long ongoing trend, I'm sure. Uh, it's, it's purely the, the COVID-19 effect. And uh, that was the way the effect w- was borne out. There, there were more postal votes. I was actually surprised that there wasn't a, a substantial increase in pre-poll voting. We've been seeing that increase over, you know, the last decade, you know, really dramatically. But this by-election didn't really build any further upon what already happened in the uh, election last year.
0: It's worth noting that Eden Monero has a relatively high rate of pre-poll voting already at least at the 2019 election it did. Yes, it, it it hasn't gone up. It's largely stayed steady, but that's steady on a very high base of about 40% of the electorate voting pre-poll. So yeah, the pre-poll voting that was already at a peak has kind of um, plateaued.
1: Yeah, and the, which is really surprising for for me at this at this by-election. I, I was sort of taking it for granted that there'd be a kind of transfusion from election day votes to pre-poll votes. Uh, that That was what happened in Queensland. But I think, notwithstanding what's been happening in Victoria, I think that the pitch of public concern isn't quite where it was when the when the elections were being held in Queensland. When I think there was just a lot more uncertainty among the public surrounding COVID nineteen, and I think people have become more comfortable with their routines. And, uh, you know, as I say, Victoria, notwithstanding the, the the edge in most parts of Australia has come off the pandemic since then and by and large voters return to their normal habits it's with, with the very significant qualification, as you say, of, of postal voting.
0: The other interesting thing to look at was the results uh, geographically across the electorate. If you look at the different local council areas that make up and you you look at the city of Queanbeyan, that's kind of the main urban centre of the electorate, uh, you did see quite differential swings in different parts of the seat. Uh, One of the things that's changed over recent elections is the number of pre-poll booths has been increasing. You know, once upon a time, an electorate might only have one or two pre-poll booths. We had over a dozen pre-poll booths this time, which meant every major town in the electorate had its own pre-poll centre that you were able to kind of analyze alongside the election day vote. So that's very handy. Um, and we did see a trend where the coalition gained the biggest swing in Queanbeyan, which has always been kind of the strongest Labor heartland within the electorate. Uh, but Labor did particularly well on the south coast in the kind of biggest shire area. And there's a few theories for that. One is the um, the candidacy of christy McBain, who until recently was the mayor of bigger valley and had a high profile recently and the other theory is around the bushfires that uh Bega valley was particularly badly affected by the bushfires and McBain was a, a prominent local figure in that time if you take out the swing to labor in in uh, bigger valley then probably they're on track to lose the election across the rest of the seat um even though there are some other towns in the electorate where Labor did gain smaller swings. But um, there does appear to be a bit of a trend there, and it does suggest that there's some, there's some localised factors about how people vote based on what part of the seat they're in. You mentioned
1: two theories. A third one I came across in some of the news court coverage was that the blue-collar tradey backlash against sort of trendy left Labor intensified, and this was why Labor did badly in Queensland. Um I am a lot more satisfied with the two theories <laughs> that you, you discussed, though, which are really to do with candidate factors. You know, you expect a certain amount of change from one by-election to the, to the next, from one election to the next, which is to do with candidates rather than, than bigger picture things. And uh, apparently this was news to me, but, you know, clearly uh, Mike Kelly, uh, what was particularly popular in Queanbeyan, it was his home base. Apparently that's, you know, where where he has the strongest local support and probably the strongest name recognition and face recognition and all of that. Whereas, as you say, uh, Christy McBain, her uh, background is in Bega Valley. So with that brought to the table, uh, notwithstanding the both the candidates have connections there, Labor went from, you know, having a, a candidate without specific connections in that area to one who did have specific connections in that area. So that area Labor improved. Having lost Mike Kelly's Queen Bean connection, they lost a bit more skin there, and the two things more or less balanced each other out. So in the course of that, uh, it's sort of... A little bit disappointingly difficult to come up with more politically interesting perspectives on why uh, the the different components of the electorate behaved as they did. You might have thought that the bushfires would have resulted in a certain amount of regional variation within the seat, but that didn't seem to be the case. Uh, I think you know there was a bit of talk that uh, there was a, there was a bit of a north south pattern in the the electorate, but it, it's not clear to me how that would have been bushfire affected. So uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, pretty much the the regional variation really does seem to me to be largely a question of sitting members' personal votes and all all of these sorts of unexciting things rather than. Uh, Uh, To get back to a point that I made to begin with, it's difficult to try, as people might, to to impose a clear political narrative on this result. And uh, the the regional variation of the swing is one manifestation of that out of many. Notwithstanding that we've had a status quo result here, we had a status quo result in Breton at the Super Saturday by-elections on the same day that there was a bad result for the LNP, admittedly, in Longman. But, you know, all this talk about, oh, it's an iron law of history that by-elections swing against the government party. That didn't happen in Braddon. It shouldn't have amazed us that it didn't happen in Braddon. You do get these status quo by-election results. It's not the case that there's an iron rule of history that says there's a big swing against the government. And funnily enough, after Super Saturday, you know, you've had that result in Braddon, which was very much like the result we've had here. There was no huge narrative about, you know, what a disaster this result is for Labor. Instead, there was a huge narrative about what a result disaster this is for the then Conservative Prime Minister, based on by-election results that weren't enormously different from each other. And uh, I don't know, perhaps, perhaps the message there is the amount of power that Conservative ideological voices have in the mainstream media that's, you know, we've got a by-election result here that the Sunday Telegraph has crafted into a narrative of Labor disaster. But when it suited that sort of branch of the media, they could just as easily turn quite similar by-election results into a narrative disaster against a you know conservative leader they didn't like. Whereas I think in both occasions, it would have made more sense to be circumspect about all of these by-election results, none of which were terribly radical.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with all that. Um, it does does make you wonder a bit about uh the coalition had a bunch of drama around candidates and uh Andrew Constance, who's a senior minister in the state coalition government and represents the state seat of Bega. he actually lives just outside of the of Eden Monero electorate, but uh a lot of his state electorate overlaps with Eden Monero had been talked about as a candidate. He put his hat in the ring before quickly pulling it out. Um it does make you wonder if someone like him, who uh, kind of gained a, a even greater profile through his role in supporting his community in the bushfires, but has also talked about retiring from politics at some point soon. So it does make you wonder about the seat of Bega at the 2023 election. You can't see anything definitive from these figures. But I have noticed in the past that it's one of the most marginal coalition seats that doesn't have a recent history of being held by the labour party so the coalition holds a bunch of seats that had been labour seats in the era of the car government and things like that um but bigger bigger ranks quite high on the list of potential labour targets in state politics considering the fact that it has a long history of being held by the liberal party it was not a labour seat during during the labour government years so that's that's going to be an interesting seat to watch, particularly if Constance retires either at a by-election or at the next state election in twenty-three.
1: You mentioned the the, the convulsions that that happened within the the, the Liberal and National camp. Uh, one thing that is a bit interesting as in the result is the National Party vote, which and the, there there was I think genuinely interesting regional variation in that there was a pretty big swing to the Nationals in Queanbeyan now, Queanbeyan is not a national party town, but their vote there went from about five, it more than double, I think, from you, you, the booth there, they, they went from being about five to 6% to being 11 to 12%, whereas the opposite was happening out in the country. Now, again, I I, I think this is a, a probably due to do with candidate factors. It, I, I think there's a sort of sense that there's some sort of Mike Kelly, John Barilaro axis within Queenbean, that there's a, a perception that those two people are, you know, cl- are allies of each other across the political aisle. And uh, that might have been, there might have been some sort of enthusiasm for the Nationals coming in because of John Barillaro's run, notwithstanding that it didn't end up happening. Whereas out in the bush, there seemed to actually be a slight backlash against the Nationals. Their, their vote fell in their traditional areas. So, yeah, early on the night, it looked to me like the Nationals were tanking because the polls, the, the booths that were coming in were the, the small rural booths, as, as invariably happened on election night. But when the Queanbeyan booths came in, that got cancelled out. So, you know, th- there's probably a narrative there, which is to do with the fact that, the you know, the Liberals and the Nationals had that, you know, big mess at the start of their campaign where they both thought they were going to be running one candidate and ended up running another. And uh, a lot of that was really uh, quite, you know, embittered between the Liberal and the National Parties. And uh, probably those that, that bitterness resulted in a bit of osmosis between the, the Liberals and Nationals compared with the last election.
0: Queanbeyan is the biggest town in the state seat of Monero that John, John Barilara represents, and it's the part of the electorate where the Nationals have traditionally been weakest. So I suspect there might be something going on here around, you know, for Barilara to have won Monero, which used to be a Labor seat, Um, he's needed to strengthen his position in Queanbeyan and maybe more of a focus on the nationals or a bigger nationals campaign here than they have done at the last election might have um, helped them, particularly in Queanbeyan, whereas in the other parts of the seat, maybe they were already at their peak. It's just a theory.
1: Yeah, quite possibly. I mean... uh... It's, uh, it, it requires probably a depth of, of knowledge of the local situation. But as you say, you know, if there's a John Barilaro effect within Queanbeyan, well, that's interesting given that he didn't even run. And, uh, you know, you might even have thought the opposite, that there might have been a sense that Barilaro hadn't been treated well and therefore a, a reaction against the party. So, uh, you know, I, I think you, you really need... a Boots on the ground perspective, you know, this is really you know second level uh, analysis here, which uh, you often get this in by election. You really do need a intricate understanding of the electorate in order to appreciate the where these sorts of undercurrents are coming from. And uh, in all honesty, as a sort of Western Australian and occasional Victorian, my um my my, my perception of the the and uh, micro-politics doesn't run quite that deep.
0: That's probably all we've got for Eden Monero uh, We just wanted to touch briefly on another issue in federal electoral politics that's happening right now, which is we have started the process of redistributing electoral boundaries for the next federal election that's due in 2022, although we may have it uh, as early as next year. One year after every election, the Electoral Commissioner uses the latest ABS population data to... Determine the entitlement of seats for each state and territory in the next parliament. At the last election, that saw the number of seats increase to 151, thanks to an extra seat created um, in the ACT, as well as another seat in Victoria. And this time, what we've seen is Victoria has increased its numbers from 38 to 39. And Western Australia, who gained a 16th seat in 2016, will lose that seat and go back to to 15 seats. And then Most dramatically, the Northern Territory has dropped from two seats to one seat, uh, which actually means the way the process works is there will be no redistribution for the NT unless they change the law um, because they'd simply merge the two seats. And if nothing changes, we will have one seat in the Northern Territory at the next election called Northern Territory. Uh, so that's that's kind of where we're at. Uh, Victoria and WA will need to have redistributions and then there is also a big debate happening including a federal parliamentary inquiry around proposed legislation that would guarantee the territories two seats each and thus prevent the NT from losing its second seat. Uh, William, what are your thoughts about this uh, new entitlement?
1: As you say, the, the announcement was made uh, last week or the week before and the um it didn't tell us anything we couldn't have calculated ourselves at very long range, and uh, which is that
0: uh,
1: Western Australia and the Northern Territory are losing seats. They're basically losing them for the same reason, which is that uh, Puff has gone out of those jurisdictions with the end of the mining boom. Uh, Northern Territory for a long time held on very precariously to that second seat. Both the territories are a little bit of a difficulty here, and the Northern Territory has basically one and a half seats worth of of population and the Australian Capital Territory has about two and a half. So, you know, whichever way it gets rounded, uh, the electorates in both of those territories end up looking uh, a little bit unnatural in terms of having enrolment quite different from everywhere else in the country. Uh, I actually would be would be supportive of the notion that there ought to be a two-seat minimum for both of them. I think it's particularly unfortunate that you might only get one seat for the Northern Territory and that seat being the most, you know, the biggest electorate in the country. I think, you know, it'll have you know, 140,000, I suppose, voters in it compared to about hundred forty just 100,000 straight up. Now, obviously, these are very rough estimates, but that's, that's the dimension of the difference you're going to get between that Northern Territory seat and seats everywhere in the country.
0: It's worth diving briefly into the maths of that. So the, the part of the problem here is there's such a big jump between um, the average number of voters if you have one seat and if you have two seats, that means effectively it, even though like from a quota perspective it kind of makes sense if you have 1.45 quotas of population, you get one seat, the, um, the, the Northern Territory's average number of voters would be much closer. Well, average population would be much closer to the national average if they had two seats rather than one. And there's a, there's a different method of allocating seats that Anthony Green has advocated for that would fix that problem. It would effectively mean as long as the NT had more than one and a third quotas, it would still maintain its two seats. And eventually, it would still be in a position to possibly lose a seat if the population dropped that far, which it, that's not going to happen. But it it does make sense that there's a there's, there is a logic beyond just we don't think it's fair to lose a seat to say that the NT should have a second seat.
1: Yeah, that that's probably a better idea than the crude notion of of simply having there being a second seat. And it's probably more likely to get political support and get you know get get the government on board if if that is indeed any sort of possibility at all.
0: I mean, you can you can argue it either way, right? Because we do have a constitution that says Tasmania has five seats guaranteed, even though they only have three seats worth of people. Um, so I think you can make an argument that having a minimum floor for the territories um, also makes sense. I, I think you can argue it either way, frankly. Yeah, I think, I'm think
1: i sure Anthony's solution is more elegant. The, the other point that I'd make is that, you know, if we're going to have one seat in the country, which is, you know, really substantially bigger than every other seat, and that seat happens to be the electorate with the highest Indigenous population in the country, uh, I think that would be particularly unfortunate and uh, not, not a good look internationally. You know, I, I think that, you know, it, obviously there's no, you know, racist intent in any <laughs> this. But if that's the way that, that, that things have panned out that we've got one sort of you know electorate with a really conspicuous indigenous population and from some angles it looks like that that uh, electorate has been malapportioned to its own disadvantage so uh, you know, I, I think that ought to be in the mix but uh, you know as you say i, I think that the, the antony green solution sounds the best you, you do raise that you know quite technical but nonetheless very important mathematical point about you know how how, how how different it is from the, the national average depending on which way the, which way the, the onion is sliced in terms of being below or above the 1.5 quota. So uh, yeah I, I certainly think that needs to be looked at. I would be sympathetic towards any change uh, designed to, 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 to ensure that the, the, the Northern Territory's represent, representation is maintained.
0: When you talk about the large indigenous population, it is true. Lingiari at the moment has is probably about as close as we get to what in America they refer to as a majority minority district. You know, it's an electorate where um, the indigenous population, those remote polling booths in remote communities across the outback, um, are are like the largest demographic in that electorate. Like it's it's a it's a big. Element there, and I, I think there is an ongoing trend in NT politics. You see that a lot more of these communities that are majority Indigenous are now electing Indigenous MPs at the at the territory level. And um, we're not talking about the Northern Territory election today, but you do see that a lot. A lot of Indigenous MPs are getting elected in the territory, and we haven't seen that in Lingiari because Warren Snowden, who's the sitting Labor MP, has held the seat um, since it was created in two thousand and one, and before that represented the overall, the the territory overall, I do suspect once he eventually retires, this will be a seat that most of the time will be held by an Aboriginal MP. Assuming it still exists. Assuming it still exists, which currently it does not exist. It has been abolished, Um, but assuming it can be revived. That is an interesting dynamic in terms of federal politics that, you know, we have a lot more Indigenous MPs now than we did before, but they all either represent in the senate where it's a multi-member district or they represent communities that are mostly made up of white people Um, and Lingiari is the only seat where you have an electorate where you could have an indigenous MP who most who not not even mostly there's a lot of white people there's a lot of other people of different demographics but it's an electorate where that person would be representing a significant population of indigenous people and I think losing that would be a great shame
1: yeah it would be you know just intuitively you would think that you know if you, the logical way to represent the northern territory is to have a, a a non-darwin seat which takes in those indigenous communities and will probably have an indigenous member on the other hand you'll have a darwin seat you know a predominantly white community you know that, that will most of the time have a have, have a white uh, member and uh, that, that would be what you'd, you'd intuitively want from the Northern Territory, but that all goes down the window if you get rid of one of those seats. I think what you'll typically have is a Darwin-dominated electorate with a white Member of Parliament and, uh, yeah, you know, that, that, that adds a sort of extra dimension to the, the concerns I was discussing about, you know, the, the, the level of, of representation that Northern Territory has.
0: One other thing I wanted to discuss with this before we wrap up is the long-term trend of different states and how their their population is, has been increasing relative to the national population or decreasing. Uh, obviously, Western Australia has had a bit of a turnaround. It has been for a long time one of the kinds of... We've traditionally have had some states that are gaining seats in some states that are losing seats. Queensland and WA are gaining seats. South Australia and New South Wales in particular losing seats and Victoria has been steady for a long time. So Victoria now has gained two seats in two elections um, and are back up to 39 seats, which is the number of seats they had when the parliament was last expanded in 1984. Um, And meanwhile, uh, Western Australia has obviously just sort of crossed over from being a state that gains seats to a state that loses seats. Uh, But it is interesting how that trend looks very different to what might have been expected a decade ago. I was recently reading a journal article about the long-term history of how seats are allocated between states that looked at um, the number of seats that each state would have been entitled to in 1901 based on the current formula, based on the current size of the parliament and how different it is now. But it also showed a graph projecting where thought things were going and it kind of had Victoria on a downward slide and would have expected Queensland to have gained a bunch more seats by now and on track to overtake Victoria. And we haven't seen that. And I'm not across all of the economic uh, factors that explain that, but I think that's an interesting story about why has Victoria kind of emerged as a as a growing state relative to the other big states and why is queensland that was growing for a very long time for a very long time queensland would gain a seat every one or two elections um, to mostly being stable now for a while and you know i uh, i wonder if that's going to change if victoria is the state that takes the biggest hit from covid-19 but up until recently victoria's kind of regained this position as the as the booming state out of the three big states
1: As a Western Australian, I'm keenly aware that our economy here is heavily defined by boom and bust. Uh, Being a resources state, you know, we have our strong periods and we have our lean periods. So from a long-term historic perspective in Western Australia, I think the the overall long-term trend in Western Australia is upwards. But it's it, no one with a, with a long sense of history would have been surprised. Uh, I don't know what your journal article said about the future prospects for the Western Australia, but it should, it should not have proposed any kind of linear trend in Western Australia because there will always be those ups and downs here. And I think there's probably an element of that in Queensland too and certainly in the Northern Territory as well. You know, during those, you know, Resource commodities boom mania periods that you get from time to time. There will be short term transfers of population to Western Australia, Queensland, and Northern Territory, and that will come through in the seat representation. Uh, by con- conversely, when there is a when those boom periods come off the boil, when people start leaving the resource states. Uh, by definition, they have to be moving back to the the sort of southeastern core states. And when that happens, their uh, population increases relatively to the rest of the country, and the, the pattern you get is, you know, the one we're seeing here, Western Australia loses the seat, Northern Territory loses the seat, Victoria gains one. Now, it's interesting that Victoria has, you know, gained as New South Wales has not. And uh, probably it's, you know, as you say, we're back to where we were in 1984. So I I think that for what reason I sort of hesitate to say, I think a conservative might tell you that, that Jeff Kennett saved the state from... You know, turning into the, into the Rust Belt with his, you know, dynamism and whatever it was else that he did. I'm not sure if there's any truth or merit in that. But, you know, there, there, there did seem to be a malaise in Victoria in the 80s and 90s. And uh, over a long period now, too long a period for you to give it to the credit to Jeff Kennedy, I huh? think. But, uh, you know, over a long period now, Victoria has reverted to its mean. And uh, Melbourne, in particular, is really the growth state, a city in Australia. Uh, the projections are that it will overtake Sydney one day. I'm not sure where those projections are at present. I think Melbourne has a lot to offer in terms of quality of life and things, and you know, lifestyle and, and all of the rest. Outside of pandemics, absent pandemics, but uh, I, I'm in, in. I'm an optimist in terms of the long term about these things. I, I don't think that you know, Melbourne's going to lose its appeal as a result of, you know, what's going on right now. But, you know, who knows? The, the, the other thing that I I sort of might point out is that uh, I wonder if Tasmania might be on the precipice of a new golden age, you know, that, you know, with global warming, you know, there was a lot of this sort of talk at the, the time of the bushfires. You know, if, if devastating climactic events are going to be a part and parcel of modern life in... Mainland Australia, then well, they don't have bushfires in Tasmania, but you know Tasmania, I I I think is uh, may well have a big future, and uh, you know may lose that sense that it's always had of being the poor man of the federation, and uh, you know start having a, a a lot more to offer to to prospective immigrants. But in terms of the discussion we're having here about seat entitlements, Tasmania, of course, is a in irrelevancy because it's it's going to be five seats, come what may. I'm not proposing Tasmania is going to boom so magnificently that it's going to be in the in the hunt for us for six seats during our lifetimes at least.
0: Interestingly, this journal article I was discussing said that on the 1901 population figures, but with the current size of the parliament, both Tasmania and Western Australia. Would have been entitled to seven seats. And now Western Australia is twice as big as a proportion of the Federation, and Tasmania is about half as big.
1: Yeah, the, the the single biggest change I would have thought in population distribution since Federation was that is that Western Australia grew and overtook South Australia along the way. Whereas, you know, back then Western Australia and Tasmania were sort of almost on par as being, you know, these sort of little Rhode Islands attached to the Virginia
0: and New York. I'm sure we'll come back to this because it, it is an interesting topic and maybe we'll get an economist on, someone with a bit of economic history as well, to discuss the dynamics of how economic success and population shifts then kind of flow through to a change in political power, the ways in which both at a federal level between states but also within states, you know, the, the uh, population growth in the outer suburbs has an eventual consequence of electorates being redrawn to give more power, which we're not going to talk about that today, but the New South Wales state redistribution is also happening now. And there will be new electorates created on the northwestern and southwestern fringe of Sydney to reflect where the population is moving, which has been a trend that has been going on for 170 years now. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally podcast. Thank you, William, for joining me. Great pleasure. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBrow for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.